Best Rest Products is where the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists comes from. It's called the Cycle Pump, made in the USA, has lifetime warranty. They also distribute the Google Tech filters for North America. The website, cyclepump.com. That's Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. While it's often difficult to trace our own motivation back to a source, today we have a story where the motivation begins with a 12-year-old girl delivering newspapers to pay for her first motorcycle. A motorcycle bought from a friend and a purchase that her parents had no idea about until it was completely done. And that motorcycle purchase was the first of many to come. A scooter helped her discover two-wheeled freedom. Later, another bike would lead her down a racetrack. A few would crash with some horrible results. All hurdles to overcome. But one bike in particular would require her overcoming a physical trait she was born with. Often referred to as being vertically challenged. Well, let's just say she was having trouble touching the ground on this particular one. And if she could do that, then perhaps anything is possible, including riding the GS Trophy in Mongolia. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Hi, I'm Sam Manning. I'm Phil. Ted Simon. Austin Ben. Okay, before we get going, I want to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode of Adventure Rider Radio to you. The first one is Max BMW Motorcycles. They've been doing it since 2002. That's Outfitting Adventure Riders. And they have got a load, I mean the full load of parts and accessories online that they can ship to your door. You order online. It's a great way to get your parts. MaxBMW.com. Get their e-rider newsletter. It's free. MaxBMW.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, making American-made heavy-duty innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using the strapping system. Um, Great systems. matter of fact, all the stuff they make is super tough. I've tried tons of it myself. The website, greenchiliadv.com. That's greenchiliadv.com. We all have a story about how and why we got into riding motorcycles, and some of them stand out more than others. Like this one, for instance, with Jocelyn Snow. For Jocelyn, her story begins at the age of 12 with a newspaper route that she used to pay for her first motorcycle. Her parents were completely blindsided by the purchase until it was already done, and somehow they were convinced to let her keep the bike. And if you're thinking that was one determined 12-year-old, well, you're probably right, and she hasn't changed much in that way, I don't think, from the sound of it anyway. Each time Jocelyn has been faced with a wall, instead of turning back, she seems to find a way over, around, or under. But she doesn't seem to want to stop until she finds the way. My name is Jocelyn Snow, and I am from Monterey County in California. And what it is I do, gosh, I'm not real sure exactly what I do. What I try to do, I I try to inspire uh, other riders, new riders, old riders, short riders, tall riders. So uh, inspire them to uh, get out of their comfort zone a little bit and try adventure motorcycling and uh, explore what's down those dirt roads. 
I could hear the hesitation in your voice when when you're saying that and trying to describe what you do. You you having trouble with it, and it's funny because because you have a sign company. You just told me about yet you don't really identify with that. You, you identify more with with motorcycling and what you're doing in in your off time. Well, that's because if you were to ask any of the employees around here, they would say, "Oh no, she." She's not, she doesn't really work in the sign business. She's always off on her motorcycle. So whatever she does, it's motorcycle related. But uh, I, I do a lot of things. You know, I, I, uh, I, I work as an ambassador for some companies such as uh, the BDR, the Backcountry Discovery Routes. Um, I work with uh, the international motorcycle shows and, and do presentations and clinics as well as uh, the MOA. Uh, I've done uh, classes and clinics with them. I coach. I've uh, coached uh, the Next Step classes down at Rawhide. Uh, I do some uh, some training, private training when needed. Uh, I work as an owner at a sign business and an owner at a vehicle wrap business. Um yeah, I mean, I could kind of keep going, but <laughs> that for the most part, I guess I would you call that a, a Jane of all trades? It could I'm be. Just yeah. a little bit it, it very well could be. <laughs> and I don't know. There's a, there's a, a second part to that that you don't want, right? It's usually the jack of all trades and master of none. And I think that's very possible. <laughs> I, I I do a lot of little things, but I'm not sure if I do anything all that great. Well, I but. thought you'd be obsessed with topography and you know studying you know 3D <laughs> d- signs, things like that. That would be you know what you'd you'd be having your nose into at night. But clearly, that's not the case. What, what is the obsession with motorcycles starts with you at, at an early age? Can you talk about that? Sure. Yes. Uh, I'm not really sure where it came from, but what I believe happened is it was a magazine rolling around at the house. Uh, somehow it got left there, or maybe it was accidentally delivered by the mailman. It belonged somewhere else, but it had a motorcycle on the front cover. It was a dirt bike. And I, it, it grabbed my attention, and I carried that magazine around. I was about uh, 11 years old. I was uh, asking my folks if I could have a motorcycle, and they were like, no, 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 they're dangerous. Um, by the time I was 12, I got into a little bit of a begging mode. And, and uh, they were, uh, I guess the more I asked, the, the more they said no. And, uh, you know, my father was the principal of my school. And so I was a, the principal's daughter. And uh, my mother was uh, a nurse at, sometimes and also administrator at a hospital. So she saw a lot of motorcycle accidents and injuries coming through. So they weren't going to have it. <clears throat> but uh, what I did is I had a job. I was I ran a paper route. Um, I was like up at four in the morning and finished in time to go to school. So I started paying this kid at school 10 bucks a week to buy uh, his Kawasaki KDX80. And it took me about a year. I think uh, it was towards the end of I, – I think I was all getting close to getting to be 13. I was – well into 12 by the time uh, I had paid for this thing. Um, But I didn't know how to ride a bike. So I took the school bus to his house and he gave me a brief instruction on how to ride. And then that weekend, his folks dropped the bike off at the end of the driveway on a milk crate and left. And that's how it all started. <laughs> and that's when things fall apart. So you actually, you financed a bike at 12 years old. <laughs> so that's that's an early financing. And that kid was mighty patient to wait a year. I hope he charged you interest. I don't know if he knew about it then. And I don't know if I did either. But uh, hey, it was money well spent. And uh, of course, I was in a small town in uh, Maine. 
and there really wasn't a designated place to ride. And so the closest thing I could find was this sand pit area, which was, I'm going to say, two, two and a half miles away. And also um, some old railroad uh, tracks where they had pulled up the tracks. So you kind of had the railroad banks. And to get to those, I had to push the bike a good two and a half miles. And sometimes I would try to ride it, <laughs> you know, and often. Which is what most kids do. They just ride yeah, it down the road. Yeah. Well, going there wasn't a big deal because we lived at the top of a hill. But coming back after riding was a big deal because pushing that bike, uh, and I mean a, a big hill. This was a, a, a long hill. The hill itself was about three quarters of a mile. So I would ride the bike home and often there was, I was escorted by uh, a town police officer, mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. How do you go from this, this Kawasaki KDX 80, which was your first bike to drag racing? <laughs> yeah, it, it actually wasn't, uh, it wasn't that far after. Um, so I had this KDX 80, which turned into a, a scooter, a little Honda, Honda Spree scooter, because I found that you could ride um, on the side of the street and you could go anywhere because it was under 50 cc's. I was like 49 or something, which made it uh, legal. So all of a sudden I had freedom that somebody would have if they had a driver's license. Um, and I rode that scooter everywhere. And as soon as I, I believe I was 15 and a half, I had a, a driver's license. I got my motorcycle license at the same time, like immediately. Um, and I sold that Honda Spree scooter and got a, a Ninja 750. <laughs> a 750? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Remember that? That was quite the bike back then. Pretty fun. I'll bet. And, and that sort of led you to drag racing? Like, and is this, is this legal racing? Um, it, it was. Uh, it was a um, closed airport, a small airport, and not too far from where I lived. And I think I had heard about it through a motorcycle dealership. The kid of the owners of the motorcycle dealership one day said, I think he had a, a CBR Honda, one of the early ones. And he said, you know, you need to come try this drag racing thing out and that sounded interesting and and off I went <laughs> and it, it was pretty fun it was just an old uh, airport with a set of bleachers and people would come from all over and um and we, there was everything from sand rails to cars and trucks and motorcycles and dirt bike pretty much anything with a motor they were they were drag racing out there all day long on a Sunday it was uh I had forgotten about that. <laughs> but, so, so this is uh, like a setup racing. This isn't just a bunch of people going out and, and you know chalking a couple of lines and doing drag racing. This is actually set up for it. Oh yes, definitely set up. You had your lights and um, you know the ambulance and and all that stuff. Uh, they kept they kept scoring and eventually you'd work your way to the championship and they had trophies and for the different classes. Mm. It was pretty fun. How did you do? I I did pretty well actually. Um, Unlike probably now, when I was young, I had amazing reaction time, so I could uh, I could get off the line pretty pretty close, and it was quite consistent. I remember uh, going to Canada and doing some drag racing in Canada as well, um, but it was yeah, it was a hobby really. I wasn't trying to be uh, real competitive at it. Probably less fearful too, you know, when you're younger, you, you tend to. 
Well, you just don't worry about it. <laughs> I didn't. I, I had never been down on a motorcycle and I didn't know what that felt like. And uh, yeah, when you when you don't know and you're young like that, you just you tend to push the limits. Uh, when I think about the things I did, uh, you know, we, we didn't have a helmet law in in, uh, in Maine. When oh, I was so you're riding with no helmet. I did. Now we raced with helmets, of course. Yeah. Uh, but I was riding without a helmet. It's embarrassing to say. I'm ashamed, but uh, I was a kid and I didn't really know better. We would put uh, those little parachute shorts on and a bathing suit top and a pair of flip-flops and head down to uh, the beach in Old Orchard Beach and ride around on a motorcycle. Um, yeah. I mean, good I quality flip-flops we're talking about, yeah, right? Right. You know, the safe ones. I protect the bottom <laughs> of exactly. pegs. The tough rubber um, ones, yeah. Yeah. But uh, not now, of course. You know, now I have more respect for <laughs> for that, and uh, it's it's all the gear all the time. Well, the thing is, too. I mean, you, you grew up in a state with no helmet law. That that's something right off the bat. And um, yeah, you only know what you learn. You know, you only know Thanks. what you're, you're you're doing at the time. So until you get that that broader perspective, you, you have no idea. But you you got you were you into racing for a fair bit because you ended up having a, an accident. Yes. Yeah, so I went from the drag racing. I, I did some off-road stuff, uh, hair scrambles, uh, enduros and such. And then I used to always go to the, the road races. Um, that's like the knee dragging, Daytona, Loudon, that kind of stuff. And I thought that was fascinating. But it was kind of like when you go to a NASCAR race and you're, you're watching the cars, you know, go around the track and you think, wow, but there's no way. I don't even know how these people got to where they got to. Like, how could you... Wouldn't that be neat to be a racer? And I just didn't quite figure out how you go about that. And one of my friends pulled me aside and said, well, you, you know, you can. You could just go get your racing license and you can start doing that. <laughs> I thought, no. It's like pro baseball. I mean, don't they have to pick you? How does this work? Um, and so uh, we went to Loudoun, New Hampshire, to the Penguin Road Racing School. And I took my test on my 750 and got my racing license. And shortly after that, I someone else mentioned that I should have a TZ250, the two-stroke race bike. It's light and fast. And um, I enjoyed working on motorcycles. And it was definitely with that two-stroke motor, you had to constantly adjust your jetting and your gearing and such. Um so that was interesting to me. So I bought the bike and raced every race I could. In the wintertime, when we were in the snow, I would uh, put it in the truck and drive down to Georgia and Florida and race the series down there, the club racing. Um, and I got enough points uh, together and finishes, good finishes, that one year to the day, I received my pro racing license. And started oh, racing uh, 250 AMA 250 GP. I wasn't really good at it, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a great time um, for a, a couple of few years, and until the, the accident at Daytona, yeah, that was uh, that was a showstopper there. <laughs> what what happened with that? Sort of walk us through it. Well, it was a great weekend, and things were going pretty well, um, and. Uh, I had a wonderful start 
it was a, I believe it was a two wave start. There was a lot of bikes on the track that for that race. Um, earlier that weekend, uh, we had a, I think it was a GPRA. It was, it was another race setup that was similar to AMA and it was raining and I finished second. Uh, in the rain. So I was feeling pretty good. The bike was running good. And then that weekend was the AMA race. Um, great start. Everything going great. Uh, I believe third or fourth lap through. Now the weather was changing. The clouds were rolling in. Um, and these bikes are finicky with their jetting. Uh, you know, the air density, the humidity, the temperature, all those affect how the motor runs. The motor can run too lean. It can run too rich. And, uh, you know, the, the the pistons and you're, being your own, and you're being your own mechanic here at the same time i i was yes and there's an inside story i don't know if we have the time but let's just say no um, we have the time go for it okay i'm curious <laughs> so i had the bike jetted for the weather that i was certain was a perfect jetting um but uh, there, there was another racer that was sharing my um pit area who may have borrowed that particular jet out of my carburetors and put a different one in while I was gallivanting around the paddock. <laughs> so, um, Brian, I'm sure it was harmless, uh, just trying to uh, maybe get a, you know, a head up or something. But long story short, that jet that, he swapped out was probably not the jet that I should have been running in that weather. Uh, and the bike seized at the end of the straightaway as I was uh, headed into turn one. Um, and when the bike seizes, the motor stops. So the rear tire locks up and, and, and I mean, we're going pretty fast coming off the front straight at Daytona as we're heading into turn one. Normally, when your bike seizes, you throw your hand up in the air so the other riders can see you and you work your way off the track. Uh, but in this situation, I was entering into uh, the left-hand corner, so I needed my left hand to pull the clutch in because the rear wheel was locked up. And I needed my right hand to come down hard on the front brakes. So I stuck my right foot out, just tried to stick my leg out so everybody could see that I was needing to get off the track. Um, and a rider did not see me. I don't think I was visible enough that I was having an issue. And uh, we collided. He hit me from behind. And, oh, there was a big spread across Road Racing World magazine on the crash page. <laughs> the two bikes were uh, vertical, nose down, and tail in the air you could roll a bowling ball underneath the front wheel and then two of us just looked like we were skydiving from the sky <laughs> it was quite the photo um his name was jim and he was okay thank goodness uh, a little banged up and bruised but uh i took uh, the collision with the two bikes as, as i hit the ground the, both bikes came and, and hit me and Oh, yes, it was. I think it sent me face first into the dirt. It was it was quite the uh, the mess. But uh, ribs and neck, back fractures, um, wrist, right ankle, uh, left shoulder. Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. 
It sounds like it. And <laughs> does this turn you off of racing? I mean, at this point, I know you were in a wheelchair afterwards for a while. Do you decide at one point after all of this that you don't want to do it anymore? Yeah, you know, I I did. I tried to come back. I, I recovered and, and got a, a bike going again and, and worked my way back. And, and I think I had a little bit of a mental block. I, I wasn't getting around the track quite as fast as I had in the past or should have been. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it sticks with you and it really, I lost a lot of the passion out of that. Um, you mean for bikes or, or for that style of racing? No, for the road racing, for the road racing. I switched to supermoto. I started doing some supermoto racing, which is similar, but the speeds are far less. And, and, uh, and you're, instead of a, a road race track, you're on a, usually at like a go-kart track, <laughs> so mm. a little bit uh, less risk, I think. Let me jump back to the jet change. This guy who did it, like, do you know for a fact he did it? Was there any sort of yeah. to-do about that? Yeah, we, we had a, a conversation about it uh, after, yeah. And, and yeah. he just thinks it was just one of those stupid things that somebody does. And Yeah, I believe he, fe- he felt pretty bad about it, so. Oh, yeah, I, I would hope. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but obviously he didn't expect that. That wasn't right, his. but you know, and, and who knows? Maybe the the jet that I had in there at the time would have done the same thing. It's 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 difficult to sell to tell. It, it could have been mm. something else. So you know, I don't want to be the one pointing fingers, but um, it certainly wasn't quite the the jetting uh, that we should have had in there for that type of weather. But it was what it was. What were you doing for work then? So I had a sign shop on the East Coast, which was pretty interesting because I, although I had quite a few um, loyal employees, um, I did a lot of the work myself. So being wheelchair bound and, and a neck brace and a back brace and one crutch and my left arm, um, I was unable to use my left arm at all. Um, I had broken my left shoulder. So to be able to lift the arm, move it in any way, it just, well, I mean, it just explain it this way. It, it hung limp at my left side. I could wiggle my fingers and that was about it. And I remember going to the, the doctor and, uh, he, he just was, shaking his head and explaining about the nerve damage that has happened and it was irreversible and I could try surgery and some other state, but basically I was done for. And his words were, you will never ride a motorcycle again. So you need to just wrap your head around that. You're never going to ride. And he, he left, uh, the office and, and went up to, uh, to the front and I wheeled my wheelchair around to the checkout desk area. And and when you're sitting in a wheelchair, you're kind of below the counter. So they didn't realize I was there. And I I remember rolling around uh, to the front counter to check out and he was in the office in there with the nurses and they were all talking. And I remember him saying, you know, see, you know, that's perfect example why motorcycles are dangerous, you know, and don't ever let your kids ride motorcycles. And I kind of patted, pat my hand up on the top of the counter, like, Hey, I'm, I'm right here. You know, um, I was, I was super upset. Uh, I remember leaving and after I, I want to say I had a few weeks of depression 
I, uh, I started trying all kinds of crazy things. After the depression, I got motivated and decided I wasn't going to take that for an answer. Like some, someone's not going to tell me that I'm never going to ride a motorcycle again. So I tried all the fancy things they had back then. They were uh, Nikon magnets, uh, a thing called Reiki, hypnosis, acupuncture. I mean, I think if you name it, I'll probably be able to tell you that I tried it. <laughs> um, and I can't explain this, but one morning um, I woke up and I had a little bit of movement in my left arm. So with that, I, I jumped straight into physical therapy. A lot of it that I did, I did at home myself. Um, and eventually was able to get my arm up and over my head and control it. So, um, yeah, the first thing I did, I drove by the, the doctor's office and gave him a big old wave. <laughs> <laughs> did you actually go in and talk to him? I didn't. No, yeah. I did. I, I kind of wish I had at this point. Yeah, I'm sure by now he's probably heard the story. <laughs> well, I mean, I doubt he's changed his opinion. You know, usually that's sort of ingrained for, for many reasons. But um, it's interesting about the condemning someone. You know, like saying your, your arm's done, sort of thing, and then having that happen. It doesn't seem fair at all because nobody knows for sure. I mean, we've heard other instances of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I felt like you know that that doctor at the time. Um, didn't really want to try. He didn't want to say, well, you know, you could go here and try this or that, or there could be a you know, surgery. He, it was more like, well, you, know, you could go out of state, you could try to get nerve surgery, but pretty much, you know, there's not going to be any, anything they can do. And it just seemed pretty negative. So, you know, my advice to anybody that encounters something like that would be to go find another doctor, you know, get another opinion, which I, I, I was... I was young. I, I didn't know any better. Today, mm -hmm. I, I would get another opinion, but yeah. I felt like the translation to everything he was saying was, you know, well, you get what you pay for. You right. Know, like, you did oh, it well, now you know, suffer. You did it to yourself. Yeah. So. Obviously, you managed to recover. You, you get your use back of your arm and you get into racing off road. That, that's, that's quite a transition because it's one thing to recover from something. It's another to, to get it back to um, fully operational. Did you actually get full use of everything back? I, I did. Uh, yes. Full wow. use. Um, every once in a while, it, it reminds me that it, it, it's still sore and such, but I have uh, full use. Um, I did a, a little more road racing after that, just a bit to see if I could get that spirit back. Um, and I had a, another crash and this particular one, um, I was, uh, Willow Springs in California racing and another rider misjudged as we went into a left-hander and hit and hit my bike on the side on my right side, which caused me to apply my right rear brake a pedal, um, as you know, they hit my leg. And so both bikes and both of us went down and slid across the pavement for quite some time with my left hand underneath uh, the bike. So it was like a big old double Oreo stuffed mm. cookie. So it was my hand and then me and then my bike and then her and then her bike. And, <laughs> and, uh, with that, I, I lost my pinky, my small finger on my left hand. Um, and it was d dangling from a, a little tendon and, oh gosh, that was a mess. So I went to a, a surgeon in uh, Fresno, California, 
a hand surgeon, Dr. Galley, like amazing surgeon. Um, and I was awake for the surgery because I was afraid and I didn't want to, I didn't want to be put asleep. So I was awake to, to see what was going on. And after several attempts to try to fix the finger so that it would work, um, he, he said to me, look, you know, we have just a couple options. We can remove it or we can fuse it. And when we fuse female, like women's fingers, we, we fuse them straight so you can show off your wedding band or your, your ring. Um, so I thought about that. You know, if you, if you stick your finger out, your pinky out straight, and you grab a hold of motorcycle grip, and you turn, that's just going to be sticking out there in the way, right? So I said to him, and this is a true story, I said to him, well, my friend in the waiting room uh, – has access to his truck and in the truck is a brand new set of Scott waffle grips. So if you'll allow him to go out and get the grips and bring them in here, uh, I would like you to curve my finger and fuse it around the grips. And that's how cool he was. They did. They brought it in in a big old sealed plastic bag. <laughs> and so uh, he, my, my, my pinky finger is molded to uh, Scott Waffle Grips. <laughs> Made to ride now. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, so obviously uh, it wasn't the same doctor because I don't think he would have been so impressed seeing you come back in. No, and see the difference. There's the difference. Yeah. So, you know, you, you have a doctor that's behind you, um, you know, all the way and, and, and helps you and, encourages you and wants to fix you and get you back doing what you love. So that sounds like one of those stories though. That sounds like one of those stories that people tell that is total garbage. You know, they, <laughs> they broke their finger and they had it wrapped around the, the, you know, <laughs> come on. Yeah, <laughs> That's it's crazy. Truth. I promise it's the absolute truth. It's, it's a great story. Um, so, so then, uh, at that point I thought, well, this is getting to be, uh, expensive, uh, this road racing and, and it's also, pretty, pretty dangerous. And I, I guess I'm not that good at it. So, um, I transitioned into some off-road riding, uh, did a lot of supermoto still and moved into hair scrambles and, and dirt bike stuff. Um, which I don't know if that was any better. Cause, I was you know, going to say, you, know, you, you could have took up swimming or something. Oh, really, Jocelyn, yeah. I mean, think about that. You know, you're just going from one to the other, like <laughs> take up swimming, you know, get into backpacking. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, that, I, I enjoyed that. I, I had a, my share of injuries uh, doing hair scrambles and such too, but um, nothing, nothing is as scary as road racing. What's the thrill of, of racing for you? I mean, at, least at that point anyway. At the time, I, I think I've outgrown the racing thrill, but at the time, I guess I was pretty competitive. Um, I was competitive even as a kid. I think I was competitive when I was born. I was probably in there with all the other babies hanging out in the incubator, you know, trying to, <laughs> trying, to trying to show them who's up. But I, I've always been very, very competitive. And, and that's, I think I, I like that feeling right before the race starts when you have like the nerves and the butterflies in your stomach and your mouth is dry and um, you're, you're as focused as you could possibly ever, you know, ever be. And, uh, the rest of the world around you just kind of melts away as, as you focus on the start of the race. And that's just a, a really neat feeling. Um, and then of course the next best feeling is at the end, if there's a victory and, 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 you know, to, 
to be able to say that, you know, you did it and you did well and be proud of yourself. So that was, that was really what I think drew me to racing. I think most people though would say that that's the worst feeling. I mean, that's that apprehension feeling. See, there has to be some sort of hardwiring that goes on for, for people like yourself who are, who are very competitive because that feeling that you describe right there, I, I think most people would say that's the worst feeling ever. And then once they get going, they feel okay with it. But that's sitting there, that everything you described right before you go to most people, I think, I think to the majority, I would say that's the worst feeling in the world. Yeah, that's interesting. And that could be, it could be how we're wired. Maybe we yeah. get, some, we, we got something, you know, mismatched. They miswired us <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a fun feeling. And I, and I, I think, although I'm not racing really anymore, um, I tend to constantly step outside my, my comfort zone and do things that give me that, that same feeling. Even before we started this podcast, it was, <laughs> oh gosh, I wonder what he's going to ask me. Oh, here we go. You know, that butterflies in your stomach. And you so, like that. I, I think I do. I do. You know, I, I, um, when I, I, vo- I volunteered and the, the IMS asked me if I would come and do presentations at their show and sure, absolutely. And also Toratech at their rally, which do a presentation in front of all these people. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you get there and I'm like, I have no idea what I'm going to say. <laughs> and I'm standing in front of all these people going, Oh my gosh, I hope I don't bore them. Uh, I don't even know. Here it goes. And, and you know, there it is that same feeling. It's, you know, it's, you're looking at them and they're looking at you and, and you have the butterflies and the dry mouth. And, um, Again, you know, you forget about everything except about what, what you're going to talk about and, and the people's reactions. And it's, uh, it's, it's pretty fun. And I think uh, because of that, um, I've, I'm where I'm at today. You know, it's, it's uh, given me the ability to, to really push myself and, and try new things. I mean, normally, if you're my size, you don't just go and jump on a 550 pound adventure motorcycle, you know, <laughs> what, then, you, what size, what is your size? Uh, I am uh, five foot one and a half. Let's add in that half. That's important. Right. Now you can tell when, <laughs> you can tell when somebody's touchy about this because you're saying five foot one and a half. And a half. I'm surprised you don't have decimal points in there. New <laughs> going centimeters. Uh, and, and I weigh about 115 to 120, depending on if I'm eating cake or not, but it's about right. So, and my inseam is just under, I think, 27 inches. So, so. So you're vertically challenged, you could say. I mean, I mean, that's not super short. No, sure. I mean, I'm asking you, it's probably the wrong person to ask that question to because you're going to say no, no matter what. But I mean, yeah, it certainly makes things difficult. And and any bikes that you're going to ride, in particular, when you get into off-road stuff, that's a problem. Yes. Touching the ground on a motorcycle had always been a problem. Um, But then when I decided to get into adventure motorcycling, I thought, you know, that's, it's one thing if it's a dirt bike, you know, and you kind of hook your knee up over and then you got to jump on and get it going that's one thing. You tip it over, you pick it up. Yeah. It's another thing when it's, you know, 550 pound beast. Um, it's a, it's a bit more intimidating, you know, uh, to not be able to get a foot down or two feet down would be great, but that's like a fantasy for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> 
to take a quick break to thank a couple of sponsors that helped bring this episode to you today and that I also really respect. Stay with us because there's a lot more to this story with Jocelyn Snow coming up. If you're in North America, October 11 to 13 this year, then you probably don't want to miss the biggest, the most talked about overlanding event of the year, Overland Expo East. For overlanding in all modes of travel, including motorcycle, Overland Expo East is going to be at Infinity Downs in Arrington, Virginia, that's USA, October 11 to 13, that's 2019, the website, overlandexpo.com. There's going to be tons of motorcycle-specific things happening at Overland Expo East, including skills instruction, presentations, panels. Hey, Ted Simon will be there. Ted, who we just had on the last episode last week, he's going to be there himself talking. It'd be great to meet Ted face-to-face, among other people. Our own Sam Manicom is going to be at the Overland Expo East as well, who you hear on ARR Raw each month. Now, remember, you need to buy your tickets online in advance, There is no gate sales. You have to buy them online. You can go for three days. You can camp on site, which would probably be the most fun, I would think, allow you to meet more riders and talk more moto travel. Infinity Downs in Arrington, Virginia, October 11 to 13th. This year, Overland Expo East. The website, overlandexpo.com. Hey, anytime you're dealing with them, booking your tickets, doing whatever, don't forget to throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And the other one is IMS Products. Hey, have you checked out the IMS Products Facebook page? If you haven't, uh, I recommend that you do. Go by and like that. You get an idea of what they're into there. They are heavily into off-road racing. And they, of course, they have been since um, 1976, I think, uh, when they started out. That's And that racing pedigree is sort of part of what you get when you get IMS foot pegs, which um, is, they put into all their products, really, and they make a whole bunch of products there. And that's why they have such a huge reputation for quality parts. And you can't sell racers products that aren't top quality. Now, I can tell you from my experience with the pegs that I'm running, the IMS pegs that I have, I'm no racer, but um, I can't count how many times my pegs have seen serious abuse from being dropped on rocks and and mud and being bashed on things that I've been riding over, including a lot of rocks. Um, I think at first I started, I was checking them to see what was going on. Now I just don't care because I know they're going to be fine. Um, I was going to say they're tough as nails, but actually I think they're a lot tougher than nails. Anyway, drop by and have a look at their full line of uh, ADV pegs that they have. Um, They all come with the IMS lifetime warranty. They're made in the USA, top quality material, and the designs are are really, really good. www.imsproducts.com. And of course, be sure to mention anytime you deal with them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. So what? How, why an R1200GS? How'd you end up on this? Well, I'll tell you, I didn't go into the motorcycle shop and say, so can you show me your biggest bike? Bring it on out. <laughs> so that's not how it went at all. Um, but I, I was told by a friend that the 1200 was easier, easier to ride off-road um, than the 800, 650, 700 and such. So I thought, okay, well, then I guess that's the bike that I want to get. So I did. I, I went in. Have, have you heard my story <laughs> you, you know, about I, buying the first bike? No, no, I, I haven't. And I, I just have to go back to this because here you're, you're an experienced rider at this point. Why do you need a bike that's easier to ride off-road? And why do you want to go bigger instead of smaller? So 
how, how it went down was this. I, I had done just about every type of motorcycling there was. I mean, from the motocross, supermoto, road racing, hair scrambles, enduros, um, drag racing. And I was still seeking that um, adrenaline that we all kind of go after, I mm. guess. Um, and the only thing I hadn't really tried was adventure motorcycling. So I thought that with the bike that big, you needed to touch the ground. So I went and bought a KTM 990 SMT, the Supermoto Touring. That bike has 17-inch wheels on the front and the back, which brings it a little bit lower to the ground. And I could I could get a toe down, one, one side or the other. And I thought, I'm going to make this into an adventure bike. So I put racks on it. I put boxes on it. I um, I put knobby tires, and they didn't make an uh, a tire, an adventure tire for the front wheel of this bike. Yeah. So I put a rear one on, and I flipped it backwards, and I made brackets for the front fender to allow for the knobs on the on the knobby tire, and that was my adventure bike. And then one day, I was at an IMS show, and I saw the GS twelve hundred. Uh, and it was it was the most beautiful bike I'd ever seen. It was black. It had gold accessories on it. And I just, I don't know, something just brought me over to that bike and I just was hooked. I thought, wow, this thing's gorgeous. I want this bike. So I went to sit on it, and which I did, and my feet were dangling, you know, I don't know, 12, 14 inches from the ground on each end. And I couldn't get it off the kickstand. You know, if I got one foot down, I, I couldn't reach kickstand. And, and the guy in the booth was like, yeah you know, maybe this is, this is probably a little too big for you. And I thought, yeah, I guess so. And I kind of walked away sad. We're going back to, going back to, you know, you'll see a pattern here. Oh, you're never going to ride a motorcycle again. Yes, I am. Or, oh no, you can't have a motorcycle. Yes, I can. Well, same idea. Well, this bike is too big for you. It bugged me. It bothered me, um, for quite some time. And then I, I saw this documentary. This is only a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago. I saw this documentary or something. I, mean, I think it was a, a video on social media about this documentary. And it was a little boy, 12 years old maybe, that had one arm and he was golfing at a pro level. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. You know, and as I did more research, I, you know, I came across this lady who uh, played the violin. And I mean, again, at like a concert level, and she had also one arm. And I kind of went to bed that night thinking, well, what's the big deal? I mean, that's their handicap. They have one arm. And they're doing all this stuff. My pro what's my problem? I'm just short. That's that's not that big of a deal. Maybe I should try to find a way to just overcome being short. And, and find a way to ride these bikes. And that's pretty much how it worked. The next morning I woke up and I drove over to the motorcycle shop about an hour from my house. And I walked in and uh, there was the, the owner and uh, the sales manager right there by the door talking football or something. And I said, hey, I want that bike right there. And it was a, a GS Adventure 1200. And they spent the next 45 minutes telling me that I didn't want that bike and it was too big of a bike. And I, you know, and at that time I had owned uh, just shy of like 35 motorcycles in my life. And I didn't feel like I had to give them a resume 
you know, like, well. Yeah, if you want it, why why do you have to convince them? Yeah, no, trust me, you know, I can write it. Um, So I tried to get a little more firm and I said, listen, this is, that's my truck out there with the two ramps. I'm going to buy this bike. I'm going to put it in the truck. I'm going to pay cash. Here's my checkbook. Uh, Can you please get me a price on this bike with the boxes and the whole nine yards? Yeah, 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 he said. And and then he just kind of left and didn't get back to me. So I pushed the bike out to the middle of the floor and walked around. And again, no, no help. So I left and I drove to a gas station and I had kind of a, that sore throat, you know, like where you're so upset, you're going to cry, but you're not going to cry, but you're trying not to cry. And I, I was just really, really bummed out. Uh, so I pulled out my iPhone and I looked up the next closest dealer and uh, the one that came up, uh, I called him and asked for the sales manager and he got on the phone and I broke down and I said, but it was, but it was Jocelyn. Do you do you have a twelve hundred GS Adventure on your floor? And he's like, oh, "Yes, yes, ma'am, I I do." Well, if I tell you I want to buy it, will you sell it to me? <laughs> poor, the poor man. I mean, he was like, uh, "Yes, yes, I yes I will." Um, and so it was getting late. I wasn't going to make it. This was another hour away. This was a, a dealership in uh, Walnut Creek. California. And his name was Sam. So Sam sent me some text messages and we went back and forth and negotiated a price and decided I was going to come up that weekend and pick it up, which I did. And I got a ride up, decided I was going to ride the bike back. And uh, they, they treated me like a queen. And the side note, I, I've since purchased five motorcycles there in the last two and a half years. So it was wow. pretty cool What are you thing. doing with all these motorcycles? Um, Five motorcycles in two and a half years? <laughs> well, that's, a, that's another story. But we'll, well, tell we'll, me you're trading them in, right? <laughs> no. Oh, one, of them, one of them, I, I did sell one after I sunk it at the bottom of a swimming pool. But that's another story too. Mm. So this is the best part. So I get the bike. I, I'm taking it home, but I'm riding right past that other dealership on my way home. And I had to use the restroom. So I pulled in with my new bike and I backed it up by the front door where they could see my plate that said, you know, motorcycles of Walnut Creek and I got off and walked inside to use the restroom. And there they were, the owner and the <laughs> the sales manager looking at me like, no way. It was <laughs> such a great feeling, but it, it actually gets better. So I headed home on the bike and I stopped at this great place just outside of the little mountain road that, that has wonderful sausage sandwiches and I stopped in for this sausage sandwich in the afternoon and uh, all of a sudden another BMW 1200 pulls up and this beautiful tall Italian lady gets off this bike and I thought what the heck are the chances of this two motorcycles here they're both 1200s we're both females this is crazy so you know she looks at my bike like oh nice bike and I looked at her bike and said nice bike and but what where are you from like I know everybody in this area I've never seen you before and when she told me where she was from I said well that's pretty funny I just tried to buy a motorcycle from the dealership in that town they wouldn't sell it to me and she said oh that's funny uh, but I believe it because they wouldn't sell me mine either. I, I went 
I went to another town to, to buy mine. I thought, wow, there's two of us here now. This is crazy. So uh, anyway, we, we swapped numbers to, to keep in touch and I headed home and then I went and did the, uh, this, and that's, an, this is another story too, but this BMW uh, GS trophy and made the women's international team. And then, so now we're like another six months later since I purchased the bike. I had the bike for about four months when I participated in the GS Trophy qualifier and made the team. So we're about six months into it. And I received a phone call uh, that a friend of mine fr- was doing a presentation uh, at a dealership and wanted to know up near me and wanted to know if I could join in. And I said, sure, you know. But what dealership is it? And he told me all which one. And I thought, oh, geez. Uh, well, what the heck? It's Why the not? one that didn't sell you the bike. <laughs> yeah. So when I went in there, there were there had to be 60 adventure riders. Many of them were friends. And we had uh, such, a, such a great time. Um, it was like meeting everyone and doing selfies. And, and, and I did notice that the, the owner of the dealership was, was in his office with his little, the blinds closed, you know. Um, but it was a great evening. And then at the end, uh, one of the, the ladies that worked there said, I have to take you to the back. I need to someone that you need to meet. And she took me around to the back. And it was this lady. And she was so cute in her little suit and her pearl necklace and her perfect hair and she came over to me she she looked like she didn't belong at the motorcycle dealership and she grabbed my hand and she said Jocelyn it's such a pleasure to meet you and my husband's an ass (laughs) 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 I was like we might have to put a beep on there but uh, I couldn't believe you know what were the chances of that wow uh, that's fantastic though what what a great way to have it come back around you going in but I I sort of want to jump back to the bike you got on the bike like you were worried about the height of the bike and the next thing you know you're riding it what did you do what what, was the change well it I wasn't riding it comfortably. Um, you know, I, I put it away in the garage that night. Like, so it was just on the street, which not too big of a deal. You know, on the street, you only really need to get a, a foot down at a, at a stoplight. Um, so the next morning I went out to my garage and I opened up the bay door and I looked at this thing and, and it was so huge. And I remember like backing up in the driveway and kind of, Resting my hand on my face going, oh my gosh, what did I do? Like, this thing's giant. Like, I don't think I could take this off road. This is, this is intimidating. Um, I went back inside, got a cup of coffee, came back out. I, I remember just staring at this thing going, wow, now that I'm getting a good look at it, <laughs> I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to find my way to ride, to ride this thing. Um, just stopping in a street light, I had to slide off the seat so much, um, that just my, my thigh closest to my knee on the other leg was on the seat. I looked like, I looked like a dog on a fire hydrant, like a dog <laughs> peeing on a fire hydrant every time I stopped, you know? And I thought, well, I don't, I don't know like what's going to happen if I take this off road. Um, eventually I drummed up enough courage to uh, take it down a, a dirt road not not too far from where I lived and um, I felt like a brand new rider which was 
kind of fun because like I said, I was seeking that adrenaline again. I had done all these different types of, of racing and riding and challenging myself. And, um, I was looking for that new challenge. Um, and that was it just riding that big bike on a dirt road brought back all that, the nerves of the butterflies and, Oh my gosh, this thing's crazy. Um, and it, it, it took practice. It did. It, it took a lot of practice and, and I'm assuming that's probably what that little boy with the, you know, the golfer and, and the, the lady, the violinist had to do. Um, it just took lots and lots of practice. And eventually I found like my way to upright the bike and my way to get it off the kickstand, um, which is unique. And I, I've done some clinics and with vertically challenged folks and, and showed them, you know, some, some secrets, but uh, it's, it's a little bit unique and, and it works for me and I'm not really sure if it looks cool, but <laughs> it works good. Well, and you, you sort of have to become a better rider to make up for that. I mean, you know, you see this a lot. We used to be in tourism and I used to take people out and teach them how to paddle a kayak or a canoe. And guys can often get away with just using brute force. But I noticed with the women, they actually took more time in mastering the skill that I was trying to teach them, which was much more satisfying for, you know, as a, as a teacher. And they, they could, they use technique, whereas the guy was just using brute force. And, and that's probably what you're finding. Whereas a taller person will just use their height as a, you know, per, person that's six foot five or something has a much easier time riding a bike like that. Whereas you have to become a little bit better rider, a little bit better balanced, uh, a little bit more forethought probably in what you're doing, all those sorts of things. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. It's exactly that. So with, let's just say a, a larger, maybe stronger rider, they get off balance. They could just put a foot down and catch mm -hmm. themselves. If the bike starts to get at an angle, they just muscle it back up to balance. With me, if I go to put a foot down, that causes the bike to go at a severe angle because of the short leg. And there's no more leg to give to straighten the bike up. My leg is fully straight. I have nothing else to straighten the bike up. Um, so it's exactly that. I have to have the finesse. Um, I, I tell, I tell uh, in my little clinics, I say, if you want to be a successful adventure rider, you need to take a cab. And they kind of look at me and I'm like, you need these three things. C-A-B, confidence, attitude and balance more so than someone like you mentioned, you know, a big guy that might be able to just, you know, muscle the bike back where it needs to go. So we need the confidence because you can't be timid and you can't kind of really second guess yourself and you, you can't be, uh, uh, stiff on the bike because we're constantly moving around to rebalance and attitude is a big thing as well. I've found, um, it's a lot of it is mental. And that's what you were missing. Wasn't it is, is like when you said you went down the road for the first time and you said you felt like a new rider, the confidence, that's what you're missing. You already had the skills. What you lost was your confidence because you're letting your mind sort of screw with you because you're on a big bike. Exactly. The confidence. And I didn't really have the attitude either. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, I was like apprehensive, like, oh gosh, you know, what did I do? So, but confidence is key and that's why it's first for sure. The, and the attitude and the balance can follow. Um, but really not just in writing, but in life as well, we're really good at 
making our own hurdles, putting hurdles in front of ourselves, you know, restricting ourselves saying, you know, well, we can't do that or, oh, that's a bit much or that's, and just staying comfortable. Um, And a good dish of confidence can change that. You know, I, I think we're our worst enemy when we, when we, if we're not getting something, it's, it's really because of our own minds and our own restrictions that we set for ourselves. Um, We're actually quite capable of some pretty amazing things if we just open up our mind and allow ourselves to believe it. Put yourself in the zone where you're uncomfortable really is what it is. Pushing yourself to the outer limit and then just a little bit beyond. Over and over and over again. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Talk about this 2018 uh, GS trophy. How'd you get involved with that? So I, so I bought this new bike and I thought, well, I need to, I took it down the dirt road and, and I didn't have the confidence. I was very, very timid. I, like I told you, I felt like a brand new rider. And I said, well, I, I need to figure out how to ride this bike off road. So I found this school called uh, Rawhide uh, Adventures down in Castaic, California. And I called them up and I signed up for the, they have two levels of class. They have a intro and they have a next step. And you're supposed to do the intro before you do the next step. But I didn't really have the money nor the time to do both. So I told them I just wanted to go straight to next step. <laughs> and I didn't know how that was going to work out. But I went down there and I did the, the class. It was a two-day class. And, and ironically, I, I didn't have uh, – I didn't really have any tip-overs and such. And, and I, 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 I earned a lot of confidence in the class. And from there, I decided now I just need to have some seat time so that I can put all these new tools to the test that I just learned. So I made and planned a trip to Alaska. And I took off to Alaska. It was 30 days, 12,000 miles. Um, And I I figured the bike out by then. (laughs) A lot of it was off-road. I did the Washington BDR. Um, along the way, I stopped off at the Toratec Rally in Plain, uh, and they had a challenge course, and I entered, and uh, I made it as uh, one of the, the finalists. I finished the, the course without any dabs or, or tip-overs. Or, um, and again, I got a little more confidence. Then off to Alaska and, and finished about 30 days later. And I came back pretty excited about adventure motorcycling. I just, what I loved about it was there was nothing I I really couldn't do. So if I'm on a beautiful twisty road and I see a dirt road, I could go down it. And if going down the dirt road, it it wise and one of them's kind of a single track and a little bit, I could still go down that. And if there was sand or mud or the road was closed or washed out, I could still ride through it. And I loved that, that it really, there wasn't really many limitations to this adventure riding and I could find and, and discover these really cool places. So when I came back, I was all talking about adventure riding, adventure riding. And once again, a, a friend of mine said, well, have you heard about, you know, the GS trophy? It's, it's coming up. You should try it. So this was, um, the end of July. I had gone to Alaska mid June to July to mid July. So this is about the end of July. And he said, well, there's a qualifier coming up in October. And you should try it. And I said, well, I didn't understand what the GS trophy was. And he went on to explain it's it's kind of like the Olympics 
of motorcycles. So it happens every other year. One year is a qualifier and the opposite year is the actual trophy. And it happens in some remote country out in the middle of nowhere. Um, And each participating country has a team of three. And then there's usually a women's international team, which is made up of three women from around the world. And you go to this country on BMW's dime and you compete. Uh, in not really, it's not a race. It's it's more uh, trials based, like technical riding, uh, skills challenges, team challenges, and, and things that require you to think creatively and outside the box. And so I thought, well, that sounds all like a blast. Um, so I want to do it. Well, one of the rules is you couldn't have a, a pro have ha- ever had a pro license. Mm-hmm. Um, but since my road racing was all road and the GS Trophy was off-road, um, I applied for like a pardon. So I had to contact BMW and, and ask uh, if they, if I could get a pardon on that. And the, my pro license was over 20 years ago. So right. that worked out. It took a couple of months to hear back. Um, and so now it was September, 1st of September. And uh, I was cleared to enter for this GS Trophy qualifier, which gave me about a month to practice because the qualifier was the first week of October. So I built the challenge course with with telephone poles that you ride along and rocks that you ride over and I made a teeter-totter and sand pit and all kinds of stuff to train on. And I spent every single night after work training and every single weekend, 10 hours a day training. And I went down to, it's what's interesting is the, we had an East coast, a central and a West coast qualifier. The West coast qualifier was at Rawhide in Castaic where I had recently taken my class. So I went back there for the qualifier and I got lucky (laughs) and uh, made it as one of the finalists. And I thought, great. And the uh, the trophy was to be in Mongolia. But it doesn't quite work that way. The The top three finishers, the first place for the East Coast, first place for the Central, and first place for the West Coast overall, first place, those become Team USA. And those were men. So that was the men's team. The first place female for the East Coast, the Central, and the West Coast would then go by points to select two. So the first and second place female, and then they sent them to South Africa to compete again with women from all over the world for a team of three. The the guys do do that too, or is that just, they do that for the women? Just the women. The the guys run the teams because it's the women's international team. So Uh, I suppose if I had won overall, so we had 53 guys, if I had finished first, then we would have the first ever co-ed team where we would have uh, Team USA would have uh, men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, but that hasn't happened in the history of the trophy yet. So uh, I finished first female and then we went to South Africa and we had 24 women, 23, I believe. Uh, actually, one lady didn't make it. but So we had 23 women, uh, two from each participating country. And we had to compete again in another trophy qualifier down at a place called Country Tracks in uh, South Africa. And that was probably the most difficult thing I had done in my life. 
<laughs> I think. I think Why? it was pretty difficult. So so it starts off we we all meet at this big hotel and they pile us onto this giant diesel pushing bus and they drive us two hours down this dirt road to country tracks. We pile out of the bus and we're dragging our gear bag, carrying our helmet and whatever else we had on the bus. And they bring us over to this grass field and they line us up and they come down the line and they throw a sleeping bag and a tent and a a pad, a bag pad at us. And so we're hanging on to that. We're hanging on to our gear bag. We're kind of balancing all this stuff, staring at them. I'm thinking, you know, great, this will be a fun little vacation. (laughs) And then they said, listen up. This is your first test. The competition has begun. You must set up your tent. Put all your stuff inside your tent. Get in your gear. Suit up to ride. Run across the field. Jump the trench. Go to the table. Check in. Run over to the line of bikes. Select the bike you want. Memorize the last six of the VIN, the mileage on the bike, the license plate number. Run over to the barn, fill out the paperwork, and go. (laughs) Sounds more like a a military training. (laughs) That's exactly how they treated it. I was like, no way. Um, So that was pretty fun. And, you know, what's interesting is I had seen uh, through social media, I had seen the previous women's team – pictures of photos of, of them in uh, in South Africa training uh, and um, competing for their qualifier. And I saw all these tents and I remember thinking, wouldn't that be funny if they had like a tent race? Because it is a lot of mental games, right? Mm-hmm. So I went to REI Outdoors World there and, and I found the actual tent that was in the photos and I made a space on the floor uh, at the store and I put the tent up and I took it down. I put it up and I took it down. I put it up, took it down. And finally, like the store manager kind of walked over. He's like, so, uh, you, uh, you going to buy the that? Tent or what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, I, I just want to practice putting it up and down. Well, it, it paid off because I, I actually won that challenge, which was great. You uh, won the, the, the tent challenge because you yeah. planned for it in advance and you, right. and you practiced. Right. Very nice. And I, I did, So I, I picked a bike and, and they separate us up into groups and then they bring us down to the bottom of this big grassy hill. So at the top of the hill were these big feather flags, right, where all the bikes had been lined up. And they bring us down to the bottom of this hill, which is about 500 yards. And they said, OK, Jocelyn, since, you know, you won the tent race, you're going to go first. And I got on my bike and they took a big black sweatshirt, like a bag kind of thing. And they put it over my helmet and tied it in a knot so I couldn't see. And they said, okay. And you had to ride up to the top of the hill to this little circle, like a, it was like the size of a paper plate mm-hmm. and see how close you could get to the paper plate. Wow. <laughs> So, so you're supposed to go by the slant of the hill. That's how you tell when you're going uphill, keep going uphill. How many people made it to the circle? Well, no. Well, one lady made it to the circle, a South Africa competitor, um, Zelda. She made it to the circle and actually got her rear tire on it. Most of the other riders were, you know, one way or the other, you know, 
several feet or even going in a completely different direction. I don't know if you've ever tried it, but if you (laughs) sit on your bike and then you completely blindfold yourself so you cannot see anything and you start moving, your brain plays tricks on you and all of a sudden you're not quite sure where straight is. Mm. Like, is it to the this way it, you're, you're you how you're about staying up and person. balancing does it throw you off of your balance it does it does it does so i had practiced this um and i told you i practiced every night and every weekend i i uh i also practiced blindfold riding um because i had heard that they used that in the past mm-hmm so I actually finished about four feet from the plate to my rear tire on the bike, which was great. So that was another great start. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then, you know, it wasn't all great. It, it had its ups and downs over the next uh, four days uh, for the qualifier. Um, and in the end, I finished fourth, which wasn't going to make the team because it was a team of three. So, of course, we were happy for our friends that had the other girls that had made the team. Um, and so we were cheering and, and super excited for them, but you know, deep inside you're, you're disappointed in yourself. Cause I thought, well, shoot, you know, I really wanted to make the team. And then they made this announcement and said, well, hold on. We have news. BMW has decided to have two female teams and fourth, fifth and sixth now made a team number two. Wow. So that was exciting. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> and the thing is too, with some of this, I mean, some of this is, is happenstance too, right? I mean, you do just one wrong thing. You may not do it the next three times, but you do one and you're out. It's done. It was like the Olympics, the same sort of thing. Very much so. Exactly that. And then you end up going to Mongolia and competing there. Yes. That, and that was so amazing. What an experience to, to have these people from all over the world that share the same passion, you know, that I did and loved motorcycle and adventure riding. And it, it was, it was just, it was just amazing. And it seemed like when, when everyone arrived in Mongolia, the, the competition aspect, I guess, was kind of in the background, not really important. We, we all felt like winners just for being there. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of how it went. So you know, teams were supportive of each other, sometimes even helping each other. Um, we cheered each other on and encouraged each other. There were, there were times when uh, there were riders, including myself, having out loud conversations with ourselves inside our tent to uh, get the strength Get out and get back on that bike and get going. It was mm-hmm. it's very, very, not so much as skills. Yes, riding skills, challenge, yes, but it's a mental challenge. It's very, very, very um, challenging that what way. What kind of things? You know, uh, it was lots of riding, which was great. But then, you know, while you're enjoying the ride and, and having a good time, you would – crest up over uh, a hill and in the horizon you would see sparkling and it would be all the motorcycles and the trucks and the cars where they were setting up a special test and you would pull up to the special test and all of a sudden the competition would be had begun 
and you don't have time really to think about it or ask questions or walk around and see what the special test is. Instead, your team walks up to the same German, the same gentleman that uh, reads the instructions every time. And he reads them to you in a bit of a monotone so that it's fair for everybody. And when he's done with the instructions, which are, you know, uh, two team members will ride the motorcycle. One team member will tow another team member with a motorcycle that has the engine off through the obstacle course while the third team member follows. Um, you know, they do crazy things. A passenger on the back carrying two gallons of oil and <laughs> you know, working way through the car. And this was a course that I – probably would be proud if I could just ride through it by myself. Yeah, <laughs> so, you're the, so you have no time uh, to think about this. You just got to figure it out on the fly. Pretty much. You, you have about a minute, maybe less for, to discuss it with your team on who's going to do what and off you go. High stress. And yeah, it's high stress and, um, you know, physically demanding. Um, it's, it's, it's a mentally challenging, like I said, uh, and, and you get tired. It's, it's, you know, up at four or five in the morning and you go pack your, your tent and everything you own into this little tiny bag and you bring the bag to the truck and then you get on the bike and off you go and it's it's all day again. And when you get tired, you, you tend to make little mistakes and just your thinking slows down. The whole thing becomes a lot more difficult. Exactly. When you get tired, you get fatigued or you maybe you don't quite eat right. You know, mm. so the, the food was, the food in Mongolia was, <laughs> was, uh, let's just say it was pretty unique. And well, uh, I'm assuming yeah, they didn't feed you burgers. <laughs> they're feeding you Mongolian food then, right? They want to give you the experience. Yeah. There was some interesting, uh, interesting stuff uh, to eat. But so maybe we weren't quite eating it as well <laughs> as we could have. But um, yeah, it, uh, it was experience anyway. And, and the, my, my best memory was this one day, uh, the entire trophy teams had been rerouted because there was a, a, a disease, a hoof and mouth, I think it was called, <clears throat> where all the, wild, the, the the cattle and wild animals were, were dying. And so you could see dead animal carcasses on the side of the road. Um, and I guess it was contagious and it was almost like a plague out there. So it was right going through where we were going to be having the competition. So they rerouted everything um, and it put uh, a little bit of a stop in our day. And we were all hanging out on the side of this riverbed behind uh, a forest and they decided to put a challenge together. So they made a technical ribbons course through this forest and they said, here's the deal. You need to go through the ribbons course one team member at a time from start to finish. And you have to finish as close as you can to your other team members. So that's the most important thing. And you couldn't see when your other teammate exited. You couldn't quite see from where you started. And they would tell you like when to go. So we decided that we were going to run a clock and we put our watches on our handlebar and I went first and, and they said dabs didn't count. That's when you touch your foot down and, and tip overs didn't count. So it's just all you had to do was worry about getting your time as close as you could to your, your other teammates. So I went through first. 
Uh, and I got to the end and I stopped and I waited an extra minute just in case one of my teammates happened to tip over along the way. So I gave them that extra buffer. And then when I exited through the gate, I beeped my horn. And that's when my next teammate looked at her clock to see how much time she had to get through. And we actually finished within a second, which was... Oh, I see what you're doing. Okay, so you've all got to spend the same amount of time uh, in the course. I see what you're doing. So quick thinking on the team uh, as well, planning and, and then going for it. Yeah, and it was a double points activity. Um, and then when we returned back to uh, the tent area for the evening, they had another special test setup, which was archery. And it was Mongolian archery. So they had like a big kind of stone at the pointed stone at the end of the arrow and you had to shoot these arrows to these round targets and i'd never shot one nobody on our team had had done archery and so we turned to uh canada team canada and those guys were great they gave us all kinds of pointers on how to hold the bow and the arrows and you know like i said we all tried to help each other out well that's because we hunt like that still here in canada and everybody <laughs> grows up you. with archery here i mean i'm gonna go get something to eat when we're done talking right now <laughs> you're gonna go get your bow and arrows so you can get <laughs> oh absolutely get a squirrel <laughs> well that explains it <laughs> um well so we followed their tips and my teammate Bettina got a bullseye and then I got the next ring out and my teammate Julia got the next ring out and we ended up finishing uh, our team finished first overall for the entire day so wow. that was that was such a fun day yeah so good times uh, overall we did well I, I don't really know exactly where we finished um, you know we we did really well we beat some of the teams but that's not what it's about you know it's it was the experience. That's what I took back from it. Uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the, the GS Trophy, it's about going to these amazing lands and seeing the property, seeing seeing the, the area and the scenery and, and, and stuff. And okay, it was that. Like Mongolia was, was beautiful and, and very interesting to see. And some people say, no, no, it's all about the competition and riding the motorcycles and Okay, well, yes, I mean, riding the motorcycle through some of the terrain, it was, it was challenging and fun, you know, for sure. But for me, it was really about the people and not just the, the people that we were riding with, the competitors, the other competitors, the, the teams from all over the world, which was, was fascinating. Um, it was the people that we met. The, uh, the Mongolians, the, the kids from the schools that came running out when we rode by or uh, the, the other Mongolians that had motorcycles that would follow us on their motorcycles and, and cheer us on and just really understanding their culture and, and how they how they live and, and get around. It was it was it was amazing. Um, it was definitely a very cool experience. So how does the, the trophy work now? Do you get to go again? Will there be a chance for you to go again? I mean, you'd have so much advantage because you've already done it once. So when they say the GS Trophy is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, it is exactly that. You get to go one shot. Wow. Um, now, there's 
other ways to go back. You can go back as a journalist. You can go back as a marshal. Um, something, something similar to that. I have some pretty exciting news that has to do with the trophy for 2020, which is going to be held in New Zealand. I can't announce it yet, but it should be out pretty soon. But, um, let's just say I'm looking forward to seeing New Zealand Mm. next year. So um, there are there are other ways to be involved, and it sounds like you found one. Um, because I don't want to dig any further than that. I actually, I actually do, but because I love this kind of stuff that you get in advance. But that's okay. I mean, it sounds like you're going to be there in some capacity. Yeah, I'm very very excited to, and and to be able to uh, cheer on the other teams and and watch the riders go through what what I experienced. Uh, it's it's. Uh, it's priceless. So where do you go now from here with, with riding, with motorcycling? Because I mean, you've sort of done the GS trophy, you can go and assist, which is, you know, I mean, I'm sure that's going to be great, but as far as pushing yourself, as far as going to that next level, what's next? Well, what, what I've been doing, so I through all this, um, I guess hype with the GS trophy and such, uh, I've kind of made it my mission to inspire other riders. And that's what I'm trying to do. So to inspire other riders, other women riders to, to not be afraid of these bikes, to try adventure motorcycling, vertically challenged riders, or, or even motorcyclists who have been riding motorcycles for many years to just step outside their comfort zone and try something different. So with that, I started writing some articles for the BMW Owners News, which is the MOA uh, magazine. Um, I have been doing tours. I've worked with a a team called Up South and uh, led some tours in South Africa and another uh, a company called Epico. Um, doing some tours in Colombia. Hey, if you're interested, I've got a tour coming up in Colombia in October, and I think I have a couple spots left. (laughs) So that's pretty fun. Um, And then I mentioned I am an ambassador for the Backcountry Discovery Routes, the BDR. And next month, I'm heading to the East Coast. We're going to be filming the Northeastern BDR. And uh, that's going to be exciting. That's the next route coming up for the backcountry discovery routes. There's a couple of questions I want to ask you about. One has to do with the swimming pool. Um, but but first, <laughs> first, let me go back to the vertically challenged thing. Like Because you're riding a bike that is, you know, by most people's ideas, a bike that's too tall for your height. And I'm wondering... Are you able to ride that bike because of your pedigree? You, you've been riding for so many years. You've done so many different things on motorcycles. You've got a, a base level there that sets you up at a certain height. And you're encouraging other people, you know, uh, vertically challenged people to ride. I'm just wondering, do you think anyone can? I mean, can anyone that is short learn some tools that's going to get them on a taller bike and ride um, safely and efficiently through off-road sections? Absolutely. So... For sure, my experience motorcycling, I mean, riding motorcycles for over 30 years, uh, I'm sure that that definitely doesn't hurt yeah, <laughs> when I mean, it comes to doubt. this, you know. But then again, riding an adventure motorcycle is so different 
from every other type of motorcycling that I had done. So experience, yes, to an extent, but really not so much. I almost had to relearn everything and find new ways to ride this type of bike. Mm. Um, and yes, I think it's irrelevant how tall you are. You know, we, we just need to stop limiting ourselves. You, you don't need to touch the ground to ride this machine. Um, any bike really, you just need to find the confidence in yourself and believe in yourself, get the attitude, find the balance for the motorcycle, and then just believe in yourself that you can do it. And, and I believe anyone can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you totally as well. Um, and, and really like, like as far as maneuvers go for you, for handling the big bike, is the, the hip shift sort of your, your main thing that you're concentrating on to get people that are short to ride tall bikes? So, yeah, a lot of it is, you know, the, the starting and stopping that tends to be, uh, the, the, the most difficult ride, the starting and stopping and get the foot down and not tip the bike over, uh, believe it or not, the kickstand. So once you're on the bike and you have your right foot down to be able to get to the kickstand, which is on the other side and get it up. Um, so I have some tricks with that. And then sometimes, you know, the terrain, uh, the angle of the terrain and, and whatever I have loaded on my bike doesn't really allow um, the hip shift or the kickstand dive that I show. And I actually have to start the bike uh, moving and mount it from the side. Uh, Start the bike moving with my left foot on the left peg and stand up on the peg and swipe my right leg up and around while the bike's moving. Um, So basically start the bike from standing next to it. Mm -hmm. And then to come to a stop, uh, swing my foot over so that I'm sort of side standing the bike, side saddle, but not sitting, standing yeah. <laughs> and bring the bike to a stop and then jump off the foot peg and stand next to the bike. You've probably seen that video. It goes on Facebook or social media with the, the, the short uh, guy, the short guy yeah. Yeah, and he's at the street <laughs> the light and, and you know, the mean, the, yeah, he's a short guy. <laughs> the, There's short this, guy yeah. this, the mean guy running the video from the car behind and he gets to the light and the short guy jumps off his bike and stands next to it. And then the light turns green and he puts his left foot on the left peg and starts the bike rolling and then jumps up onto the bike. That's a, it's a funny video, sure, but that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's a, that's a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> I do that. <laughs> so, um, and once you, know, you get the balance of doing that, of starting from, from standing on a peg and stopping the same way, it's kind of like a bicycle, same sort of thing. Once you get the balance of it, it's actually a, a, a very controlled way to get on and off the bike. It is, it is. And, and it probably looks like you're showing off, yeah, you know, exactly, at least that's yeah. how I feel, but it, to me, it's a very comfortable way. Uh, once you do, you get the balance. It's a comfortable way to start and stop the, the bike. And I have shown this technique in, in some clinics just recently, uh, last month at the Toratech rally in Plain, Washington, with uh, a group of vertically challenged riders. And uh, a couple of ladies tried it. They brought their bikes to the uh, clinic and they gave it a shot and it was a success and it felt so good to see them get excited about mm. the side mounting the bike and dismounting from the side while it's moving and it was uh it was pretty great because it really gives them ownership over it doesn't it and just yeah just being in control exactly i first thing i teach is you're the boss of the bike 
the bike is not the boss of you. Jocelyn, it was great to talk to you. (laughs) Thank you very much for coming on the show. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for your time. I I really, I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for all you do. Jocelyn had another story about a motorcycle and a swimming pool that we sort of mentioned in the interview. It's quite a good story. It's funny. It's interesting. um, But we sort of ran out of time here on the show. So I tell you what I did for you is if you go to our website, adventureriderradio.com and find this episode, it'll have the show notes there. Um, We have posted a separate file of Jocelyn telling the story. I encourage you to go to the website and have a listen. You won't find it where you can get podcasts, etc. It's only on our website. It's only a file there that you can listen to right from the page. If you have trouble finding it, go to the search bar. That's on the right-hand column, uh, the right-hand side of the website, and just type snow or something like that, and you'll find that episode, and you'll be able to hear this story. Post on Facebook what you think of the story, of the whole thing, for that matter. That was Jocelyn Snow in Salinas, California that I was speaking with. And you can follow her, of course, on Facebook and Instagram. Her Instagram account is... J-O-C-E-L-I-N-S-N-O-W. And of course, as always, the links are in the show notes on our website. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks so much for listening to Adventure Rider Radio. And remember, we have another show that we do once a month called ARR Raw. It's a separate show that you need to subscribe separately to. Everywhere podcasts are found, you can listen to all of our shows or you can listen to them on the website, adventureriderradio.com. We also have show notes on each one of the episodes that include photos that often haven't been seen before and different information about each of the episodes. So it's always worthwhile to drop by our website and have a look. And we would, of course, appreciate it if you do that. Hey, a special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. And uh, let me quickly ask you for help with ARR. We need your support to make this thing work. We built this on a model that includes advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. And, and there's some things that we want to do with Adventure Rider Radio that we really need more listener support to be able to do. Anything $10 or more gets you one of our ARR stickers. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show. And we'd really appreciate it if you consider becoming one of our monthly patron supporters. You can get a sticker that way as well as some other bonuses that we have there, including ad-free listening if you want it. It doesn't take much each month to help out with us producing this show. And uh, the more support we get, of course, the more we can do. So drop by AdventureRiderRadio.com, click on the support button. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Really appreciate it. My name's Jim Martin, and now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. This is Adventure Rider Radio, and this is Nick Sanders from Wales in Great Britain, and it's a pleasure talking to you all.